Well, welcome again, everybody, to Grace. It's good to see you. Welcome, everybody, watching online. Thanks for being with us also. And everyone at the Extension and everybody at Fuel and everybody at all of the live sites uh, all around everywhere. Thanks for being a part of things here. I want you guys to um, look at this card. If you're in the room or you're at the Extension, these cards are on your chairs. If you're online or at one of our uh, live sites, they're on the app. But uh, this is a uh, reminder for you about our Christmas services. And more than a reminder for you, it's an invitation for you to use to invite someone else uh, to one of our Christmas services. So if you know someone that is <clears throat> maybe unfamiliar with Grace Church, maybe even more importantly, uh, unfamiliar with the gospel and who Christ is and what Christmas is all about, I really want you to use this to invite them. Um, the message of Jesus, the person of Jesus, will be made clear at the Christmas program and we'll have a blast and it's fun to be a part of it and creative and all those kind of things. So take advantage of that. Invite someone. You'll see that there's 13 Christmas services to choose from. I will be at all 13, so I think you can make it to one, all right? So uh, take advantage of that. And uh, if you usually uh, tie into Grace online or at a, a, a venue, uh, then come on in and be a part of this. Everything will be at the Jet Road building. For those of you at the extension, the Jet Road building will be every, where everything is. Uh, so take advantage of that and be a part of it, and we'll have a blast celebrating uh, Christmas together. We've been in a series here these last few weeks called Firstborn, and we're talking about who Jesus is. That, that term, firstborn, uh, comes from the Apostle Paul. He uses it in Colossians chapter 1, and he's talking about Jesus. He gives him that title, and we've said that firstborn in the Bible is used a little bit differently than the way that we would use it in our modern vernacular. Usually when we talk about uh, the firstborn, we're talking about the oldest child. And so that, it can be used in the Bible that way. It's not generally how it is used that way. Uh, when God uses it in the Bible, he's using it in an ancient context. And so he's talking about rank, not position, right? So oldest child is the position you're in. Rank is the firstborn. So the firstborn in the Bible would be a royal term. It means it would mean to have authority. It would mean the one that goes before. It would be tied to leadership. Paul uses the word supremacy. And when he talks about Christ, he's saying that, that Christ is first in rank, first in authority, first in position. Uh, he has supremacy over the areas of which he is the firstborn. In fact, let me show you this. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, and we'll look at, starting with verse 15, this is page 821, and those Bibles that are in the chairs, if you want to use those, and this is all on your app, verse 15, chapter 1, Colossians, the Son, that's Jesus, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. 
He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that ever, in everything he might have supremacy. And so we've talked about this for a couple weeks. Last weekend, uh, Pastor Ryan walked us through this idea that Jesus is the firstborn over creation and what that means and what it means in our relationship with him and even how that shows up practically in our lives. And this weekend, I want to focus on the next part of the passage, and it's this idea that he is the head of the body, the church, or you could say he is the firstborn over the church. He has authority over the church. He has rulership over the church. He has supremacy over his body, the church. Now, I want to dig into this this weekend because if you're not careful, especially if you're a church person, you'll hear a, a term like that or Jesus positioned that way, and we'll kind of throw it out into this big theological world, right? That, that, that means that Jesus is the head of the church, and it has these theological implications and doctrinal implications, and we'll get into those kind of conversations. What I want to show you this weekend is that Jesus being the head of the church has deeply personal implications for you and for me. And it's important, very important, that Jesus is the head of the church, and we want Jesus to be the head of the church. And when you look at how he interacts with humanity, actually starting at Christmas, that then is modeled and woven into the church and the same messages and the same desires that he lived out, now he calls his church to live out, okay? So let's dig at this a little bit. Jesus is the firstborn. He is the head of the body, the church. Let's start by talking about what the church is, because this is, this is where we get a little hung up. Almost everyone who has interacted with the church has, has some scars to prove it, right? So we're like, Jesus is the head of the church. Are we talking about the Vatican? Are we talking about a denomination? What are we talking about when Paul says this in Colossians? So let's define the church first, just for clarity, okay? The church, the church is a spiritual gathering of the followers of Jesus. Let's kind of stop there for a second. The church is a spiritual gathering of the followers of Jesus. So when Jesus talks about the church, when the apostles talk about the church, they're not talking about organization, per se. They're not talking about like the Vatican in Rome. They're not talking about buildings. That's usually the way that we talk about it. Uh, we talk, we'll say, we're going to go to church this weekend. What we mean is we're going to go to the building that the church gathers in. The, the building that we're in right now or that you're in right now is not the church. It's the, it's the building the church gathers in. We have a building that we gather in because it's freezing outside. That's why. And it is about 90% of the time, right? So we need to come indoors when we gather together. That's the main purpose of this structure. The Bible would say you are the church. If you, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have agreed with Christ that you have sin in your life and agreed that he is the only source of salvation and receive the forgiveness of your sin, the Bible says this, that when you pray that and yield to God that way, several things happen simultaneously in your life. When you ask Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, your sins are forgiven. They're thrown as far as the east is from the west. The Bible says you receive the, the Holy Spirit. We would often say God comes and lives in our... 
we would say our heart. He comes and lives in our soul. The Holy Spirit then acts as a deposit on our place in heaven. It's how we know we're gonna go to heaven when we move from this phase of our life to the eternal phase of our life. The other thing that happens instantly is you are grafted into the church of which Christ is the head. So you become a part of the spiritual entity called the church. And the Bible uses several metaphors to describe that spiritual entity. The Bible uses the the metaphor of a family. The Bible uses the metaphor of a flock. The Bible uses the metaphor of a bride. The church is the bride of Christ. And then the Bible uses the metaphor of the body. So Christ is the head of the body, the church. That means that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, Christ is the head of you. He has authority, rulership, supremacy over you. And then the me becomes the we. We then gather, I am the church and we are the church. That means Christ is the head of us, right? It's not some concept out there somewhere. It shows up in our everyday personal life. So this group of followers of Jesus, the church is the group who are committed to loving Christ, being defined and directed by Christ, loving each other and loving and serving the world around us. That's who that is. Now, the Bible teaches us that to organize a little bit. So the church has offices. So the Bible says there's elders. It's a Bible word. It means overseer. There's overseer. There's elders. There's deacons. There's deaconesses. Some are given to be teachers and pastors and apostles. There's different ways that the Bible says to organize the church spiritually. And then we also organize culturally. Uh, somebody has to decide what time we're going to have services and how many Christmas services we're going to have, right? That's not what Paul's talking about there, right? And so what happens is because we do that, sometimes we'll look and say, well, Pastor Jeff is the head of the church. And I would say, no, I'm an elder of our church and I hold the office of pastor and the organizational office of senior pastor or head pastor. That's who I am. But I'm not the head of the church. You don't want me to be the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church, his body, okay? Now, what does that mean? It has, that has big, big ramifications. What does it mean that we are the body of Christ? Let's talk about this for a second. Being the body of Christ means this, and it's why Jesus uses this term and the apostles use it later. It means that the church is a representation of the, of the body of Christ. It means this, as the body of Christ... What that means is this. If Jesus was here physically, he would love and teach and act and interact with people this way. He's not, we are. So you are the body of Christ. I am the body of Christ. We represent Christ as if he were here. The Bible says we're ambassadors as if he were making his appeal directly through us. So I'm to represent individually and corporately, we represent the heart of Christ, the mind of Christ, the truth of Christ, the grace of Christ, the compassion of Christ, the justice of Christ. If Jesus were here, he would do what? We are here, so we do it. We are the body of Christ. Now, that's about where it gets complicated 
because most of us, in one way or another, would have some kind of frustration or hurt because of the church. And we would look and say, wait a minute, the church is supposed to represent the heart and mind of Christ? Yeah. Well, what about all the people who use people and get money from them in the name of the church? What about all the secrets and lies that have been kept in the name of the church? What about all the abuses of the church? What's that? And I'm, I'm supposed to, Christ is the head of that? It's fascinating. Mo, most people don't have a lot of issues with Jesus. Most people do have a lot of issues with the church. And yet here, Christ is putting this enormous emphasis on it. He is the head of the church, the founder, the director, the leader, the empowerer of the church. So we're supposed to represent him. We've got to dial that into our mind. And then we have to dial this into our mind too. And the church is not perfect and it's not going to be. And in these two positions, Christ has said, I want it set up that way. I want flawed, imperfect people to represent a flawless, perfect God. I want flawed, imperfect people to proclaim a flawless and perfect truth about God. I want flawed, imperfect people to live out a flawed and imperfect love. I want it that way. And as I'm interacting with Christ and with the church, I have to remember the church is not perfect, ready? That's why it's so important that Christ is the head of the church. Because I have to respond to Christ, not just those who seek to represent him. Let me show you what I mean. You know why you want Jesus to be the head of the church and not Jeff? I'm going to show you. You want that because of my thumb. That's my thumb. I've been wounded, right? I probably had to practically call an ambulance. See, my thumb matches. That's my thumb. Let me tell you what happened to my thumb and why it's Heidi's fault. <laughs> Love you, honey, right? So Heidi called me one day and she said, hey, she said, I got a deal on flooring, like this hardwood floor for the basement. She said, I found this incredible deal. And she said, can we, can we get it? And I was like, I don't know. You know, the kids are in the basement. It's trashed all the time. I don't know if it's worth investing in the children or not. And she said, she goes, it's a really, really good deal. I want to put it. She goes, if, I, if, if, you, if you say it's okay to buy it, we'll buy it. She goes, she goes I'll put it in. I'll put it in myself. And I was like, okay, if you're going to do the labor, you can, you can put it in. Now, when she said she wanted to do the floor, let me tell you what crossed my mind immediately. What crossed my mind immediately was in order to put a new floor in, you have to move the furniture. And down in our basement, there's a piece of furniture that I hate. I hate it. It's been a part of my life for about 15 years. I despise it. I don't know who built this piece of furniture, but they're evil, right? It was built by like the devil using cats in Michigan. It, it's whoever came up with this piece of furniture. And it's, it's this old entertainment center. It sits in a corner. It weighs about 1,400 pounds. It's solid oak. Some Amish guy went nuts when he built this thing, and it weighs a ton. And my dearly departed mother bought this 
ugly, sinful, cat-built, Michigan-oriented piece of furniture about 15 years ago. I moved it into her house for the first time 15 years ago, and the minute that I met this piece of furniture, we started a hate-hate relationship. I hate it, and it hates me. My mother passed away. I moved it out of her house, and I moved it into our house. And it went into our house, and it started off in a nice place of honor, and then it got degraded because it's a horrible piece of furniture doesn't deserve to be on the main floor. It went to the basement. It went into the basement, which I moved it into the basement. I moved it out of our old basement to our house into our new basement. And I told Heidi after moving this piece of furniture that I will never move it again. I made a vow between Heidi, myself, and the Lord that I will never move this piece of furniture again. Heidi says, I want to put new flooring in the basement. I'm thinking I got to move that stupid entertainment center, right? So Heidi gets to work and she rents the tools and she cuts the jams and she starts installing all this furniture, all this flooring, and she came to the point where the furniture needed needed to be moved. By the way, a friend said to me, he said, how do you feel about the the fact that your wife put flooring in your basement? Isn't that a man's job? She did it. I said, first of all, I can't see a downside, frankly, that she did it all. And I said, secondly, it's not my fault that my wife is cooler than yours. I mean, let's just, let's just level that out there, right? So Heidi's got all this flooring that she put in while I was, mostly while I was watching football. And so she put all this in and she got it in and now it's time to put the furniture back. And so the boys and I put all the furniture back and I came to the entertainment center and I made a vow between myself, Heidi and the Lord. And I said, I'm not putting that thing back. I said, it's got to leave the house. So she put it out online. Nobody wanted this piece of furniture because everybody realizes how antiquated it is and how much it weighs. And if you love Jesus, you hate this piece of furniture, right? So I said, I'm done. And I said, I am gonna rip it apart and we're gonna bring it out of the house in pieces and throw it away. I can't wait to kill this piece of furniture. So I went to my garage and I got a three pound sledgehammer and I'm ready to start beating on this piece of furniture. And I got the boys lined up because they're old enough now that they're actually useful for something. And so the boys are lined up to carry the pieces of of the furniture out of my house. And I start beating on this piece of furniture and I released all of my pain, all of my angst about the furniture all the wounds of my childhood, the Purdue loss, everything was taken out like on this piece of furniture. And I swung the hammer. And when I swung the hammer, the demon that built the piece of furniture had built a lip into it just right. And it took one last shot at me. And I crushed my thumb between the the wood and the hammer. Now in that moment, you're really glad that Jesus is the head of the church. You don't want to follow me. You want to follow the Lord. Because in that moment, I was so mad. I just yelled at the kids. I'm like, what are you, what are you doing? They're like, we're standing here. I'm like, exactly. <laughs> right? You're standing there, right? And in my mind, I didn't say it out loud, but in my mind, I was like cursing. I was like, Michigan. I was like, ah. And then I hated people. I'm like, Amish people. Right? And he's so angry about this whole thing. You don't want me to be the head of the church, do you? You don't want a flawed human being. I can't even handle a piece of furniture. 
I'm a flawed friend. I'm a flawed pastor. I don't pick up on people's needs really well all the time. I can be like blind and cold to those things. I don't remember things. If you've been a part of this church for more than about 15 minutes, I've let you down or hurt you or disappointed you in some way. You don't want to follow me, right? You want to follow me as I follow Christ, but if all of your investment is in Jeff, if all of your hope is in Jeff, if all the dollars you give and all the hours that you serve and everything you do as unto the Lord is actually unto a person, it's not worth it. Christ is the head of the church. Christ's love is faultless. Christ's truth is faultless. He will never leave or forsake you. In a healthy church environment, you're going to run across people who do, I do love Christ and I do love you. I'm just messed up. And you have to deal with me. You're messed up. I got to deal with all of you. Right? We're imperfect trying to strive, working at our salvation with fear and trembling. We're striving to love each other perfectly and the world around us perfectly, and we're never gonna do that perfectly. That's why Christ is the head. He's the one that we follow. He's the one that we interact with. He's the one that we're dedicated to. It's a really, really important thing that Jesus is the head of the church, the head of the body, his church. You are the church. He's the head of you. We are the church. He's the head of us. And we're to represent his heart and mind, and that's always going to be done in an imperfect fashion. Now, what's fascinating to me is when you start digging into the scripture, you start to see this pattern play out that from the beginning, what Jesus did was he drew imperfect people to himself and entrusted them with his perfect message. I want you to get in your mind the, the picture of kind of like a traditional nativity, okay? So this is a painting from the Renaissance. It's not what the real nativity looked like, but you're getting it, right? Get a picture of a traditional nativity and start to think about the people that Jesus first drew to himself. So you got Mary there, right? Mary would have probably been no more than 15 years old. That would have been a woman in the ancient world. So you have Mary who got a visitation from an angel and was told that she was chosen from among all women to give birth to the incarnation of God. And she is drawn to Jesus. And here she is, she was young, she would have been scared, she would have been insecure, she would have been overwhelmed. She, she, she would have been feeling completely inadequate and Christ would have said, right Mary, you are gonna be a part of representing me. You come to me and I'm gonna trust you with my message. Joseph was there, Joseph would have been a young man but not a boy. 
So Joseph and Mary were not homeless refugees trying to find a place to live. Joseph would, would have been a skilled laborer. He was a carpenter, and he would have been successful enough in his skilled labor that he would have created a business and a reputation for himself to the point that when he asked to marry Mary, Mary's parents would have said, you are financially stable enough and you have enough of a reputation that you can take a wife. So he's a skilled worker with a reputation to the point that he's making an income from his work. He's there. He is a very independent and, and self-sufficient guy. And he is drawn to the manger and entrusted with the message of Christ. The shepherds are there. The shepherds are, are they're poor, or they're the working poor. They're not the focal point or even fully ingrained into the culture of the day, but they're skilled labor in that anything they have to do with a goat or a sheep, any food that they needed, the weather patterns, any kind of veterinary medicine, they would have known how to do that. They're skilled, but they're uneducated. They probably couldn't read or write, but they could sustain their life. They're the working poor. And God says, you know what? I want the working poor. I'm going to draw you into this scene, so to say, so that you can interact with my son and you can be the ones that represent the truth of who Christ is. Later on, the Bible says the wise men come. They, they come later on and they are the elite. They are the learned of the day. They are the PhDs of the day. And they also have wealth to, to bring the gifts they, they brought and to finance the caravan it would have taken. They were recognized as the elite and recognized as the wealth so much so that when they entered the area, the government, Herod, the king, wanted to interact with them. They got an audience. Shepherds don't get audiences with kings. So around this nativity set, so to say, you have the young and the insecure, you have the self-sustained, you have the uneducated, you have the elite, and Christ draws all of them to himself, and he says, I'm going to entrust the message of myself to you so that you can represent it and you can proclaim it. You're imperfect, you're not gonna do this right. This is a little bit of a mess and it's where the perfect God is gonna arrive and make himself known through what we call the incarnation, God with skin on. This is the same heart then that is reflected in Jesus' establishment and creation of the church. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all this, all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. Christ would continue to beckon all of these different types of people to himself. And he would say, you now are entrusted with my message. You are my representation. You're the one that's gonna let people know who I am and what I'm about. In fact, spiritually, you're going to become me and I am your head. I am the firstborn over you as an individual and all of you as a church. And I'm gonna draw you from all walks of life for we were all baptized by one spirit uh, so as, to, as to form one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free. All life, all position, you come to Christ and I will entrust you with the message 
and I will weave you or graft you into myself so that you and I are one thing and I am the head of that one thing. I'm the firstborn. I'm the ruler. I have supremacy over what I have created. And it's supposed to be flawed people representing a flawless God. Now, guys, this is, this is a big deal. It's a big deal. If you want to follow Jesus, if you're thinking about it or you're in already, if you want to follow Jesus, this concept is not out there somewhere. It, it's, it's right in your personal life and in our lives together. And the church is important to understand. And what I want you to see is this. Ready? If you can get your head around the nativity, you can get your head around the church. Catch that? If you can get your head around and understand what was happening at the nativity, then you can get your head and understand what Christ wants from his church. Let me show you this a little bit. Just like in the nativity, when you think, of, just think of that nativity, what's the focal point of that nativity? The focal point is Christ. The same thing is true of the church. The church exists for Christ. The church exists for Christ. This is important, ready? I love you, but the church is not about you. The church is not about your preferences, it's not about your wants, it's not about your needs, it's not about your desires, not at its very, very core. The church is not about convenience. The, the church is not whether you like Jeff or not. The, the church is not whether you like the guy sitting beside you or not. Don't elbow, that was not nice. Right, so like, that's, not, that's not the thing. The church, at its very foundation, exists for Christ. And it is Christ who is to be amplified, Christ who is to be exalted. Christ is the focal point of the church. Let me show you this. You see this even at the nativity. If you go back to the left in your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 2, you'll see kind of the, the passage about Christmas that we tend to lean on the most. Luke chapter two, page 716, verse eight. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, watching, keeping watch over the flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born. He is the Messiah the Lord. This will be the sign to you. You'll find the baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor dwelt. When the shepherds interacted with the angels, the angels were not proclaiming the convenience of the location of the birth. The angels were not saying initially to the shepherds, boy, you guys are finally going to understand some things in a way that makes sense to you. They were not saying to the shepherds, if you go over to the manger, there's free coffee. What they were, what they were proclaiming at the core is they were proclaiming the glory and the majesty of the one who came, Christ. 
Can you imagine if the shepherds walked into the manger and they looked around and they thought, I don't like the colors on this manger wall. I mean, this is just, who painted this thing? And what decade was it? BC 41? Can you imagine if they walked in and they looked and they said, who invited Helchizedek? Ugh. When they came into the presence of Christ, Christ was glorified. And they came with open arms. They would have come and said, I have needs, I have desires, I have deep down things that need to be fulfilled in my life. That's all fine and all appropriate. It's all good. But they also came with a bended knee. I am kneeling, I'm bowing before the one true God. Christ the Lord is in my presence. If you get your head around the manger, you get your head around the church because the church exists for the glory of Christ. When we gather together, it is not for preference or for entertainment or because all of our friends are here. Those things can be fine, but it's not the point of the church. The church exists to glorify Christ, not just to amplify me. I don't gather as a church to get my needs met. I gather as a church primarily to praise the one who created the church in the first place. This is why when we gather, we sing worship to God. We don't do the Greatest Showman soundtrack at church. It's a fun song, but it's not the point. It's why when we gather at church, it's actually why we give money. It's an act of worship or surrender to God. It's not the way that you finance the church. It's a part of our worship. It's why we teach the word of God. It's why we do those things. The church does not exist to push politics. It does not exist solely for social causes. It does not exist to make statements. It does not exist for anything outside of what the word of God teaches. And it won't apologize or backtrack because culture changes either. But it does not exist for its own agenda. It exists to lift high the name of Jesus Christ. Just like the nativity, the focal point of it is not the people, it's the child. See? And Jesus would say, that's my church. You're, you're my body. You do the same thing. You, you direct glory and honor and worship to me. If you can get your head around the nativity, you can get your head around the church. The other thing you see in this is this, that the church is an invitation from Christ. The nativity was that too. It was, it was a beckoning for people to come and find a savior. Hey, I got good news, great joy for the whole world. A savior's been born. You should go find him. Well, how will I know I find him? Here's a sign unto you. You find that, you found your savior. The church is an invitation to find Christ. It's not a defense against a yucky world. It's fascinating, eight days after Jesus was born, Joseph and Mary took him to the temple 
And when they interacted at the temple, they ran into this guy named Simeon. Simeon had been waiting for the Messiah to be born, and God had promised him he wouldn't die until he saw him. So they show up. He finds Jesus. This is what he says, Luke 2.29. My eyes have seen your salvation. He's talking to God. The baby is the Savior. And then he says, this child is going to be a light of revelation to the Gentiles, Jesus would look at the church and he'd say, what I want you to do is what I did for Simeon. You, you are going to proclaim salvation. The reason that the church will talk about sin is so we can recognize it and understand we need a savior, right? I don't need a savior. I'm a really, really good person. I bet you are a really, really good person. Have you ever lied? Have you ever cheated? Have you ever stole? Have you ever had a lustful thought? You, you just broke four of the Ten Commandments. You need a savior. God's standard is not good. His standard is perfection because he's holy and righteous. So the church proclaims that. There is salvation. There is a way to heaven. Jesus' words. You know what Jesus said? He said, I am the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to to the Father except through me. It's only the church that would say that. And then the church is a light of revelation to the Gentiles. What does that mean? It means when you look and say, I'm, I, I'm trying to fill my life up. I've tried with this. I've tried with that. I've tried with the other thing. I've tried with this thing. I'm always a little bit empty. Oh, you know what? I have some revelation for you. You were created to worship and interact with the one true God. Who is that? His name is Jesus Christ. The church is an invitation. Hey, it's not all the holy people gather and everybody else stays away. The church is an open door, welcome in. But I'm a sinner. That's okay. We'll teach you how to have forgiveness. But I have this bad habit in my life. That's okay. We'll teach you how to have freedom from that addiction. But I don't understand God. That's okay. We'll teach you the revelations of the one true God. It's not a place that you hold people out of. It's a place that you invite people into. People were taught, they were beckoned, they were welcomed to the nativity. If you can understand the nativity, you can understand the church. The last insight I want you to grab is this, that the church is given for the world. God did not give the church to the church. He gave the church to the world. And the church, when Christ created the church, of which he is the head He created the church for the world around us. The church, the the church is not meant to simply serve itself. The church is meant to love and serve and express the heart and mind of Christ to the ones that Christ came seeking to save. And if you can understand the nativity, you can understand the church. Christ, it sounds a little weird, so hear me out. Christ was not born just to prove that Christ could be born. Jesus and and the Heavenly Father weren't like, you know what, I'm gonna, I gotta, I gotta nail down this monotheism thing. I gotta show everybody there's one true God. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna, I'm gonna take my deity and I'm gonna put it in human form, the incarnation. I'm gonna be born of a baby. I'm gonna live a sinless life. I'm gonna lay my life down on the cross. I'm gonna raise myself from the dead. And that'll prove to everybody that they're doing it wrong. He, was, he wasn't born just to prove that he's God and in his deity he can do whatever he wants. That wasn't the sole purpose. 
He wasn't born to call a few to himself, right? You know what, I'll be born and we'll get mom and Joseph, throw the shepherds in there, bring the wise men in later on, and then we'll get some apostles and some disciples, and, and I'll show everybody that if you knock it off and get your act together and really put your shoulder into this, you can follow me. And that will prove to everybody else that you're just not trying hard enough. I've made my point, Jesus, out, right? He, he, he wasn't born just so a few people would get it right and demonstrate to everybody else that if you would try, you could get it right too. Christ was a gift to the lost and dying world. The church is a gift. We are not the opponents of a lost and dying world. We are the gift of God to a lost and dying world. And we can give you revelation and we can point you to the only way of salvation. And that's why Christ was given and we as his body now represent that and live that out, although imperfectly. When you look at this verse, famous one, John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, it's a really important word, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever, like what do you mean? Like an insecure teenager? Yeah, whoever. Who's not even sure what they believe? Yeah, that one. Like an uneducated guy that is just kind of on the fringes of society? Yep. Like a shepherd, whoever. Like, like, like a guy that I don't, I'm kind of fine in life. I kind of manage my life just fine. A guy that's already pulled himself up by his bootstraps and can kind of handle it like Joseph? Yep, whoever. Like the elite of the elite? Yeah, the hyper-educated? Yeah, what if, I can't, what if I can't settle the question of creation versus evolution? Maybe I don't want to, wait a minute, you're telling me that you love to investigate mysteries, but you can't live with one spiritually? Whoever, whoever will come to the manger, so to say, with open arms and a bended knee. I need you, God. I have desires in my heart. I need understanding. I need help. And you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the God of gods. And Christ didn't come to prove a point or to invite a few. He came for the whoever. In fact, the next verse, I think it's one of the most important verses in the whole Bible, John three seventeen. for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Christ didn't come to prove a point. He didn't come to save a few. He came for the whoever. He didn't come to condemn the world because we've condemned ourselves. You just admitted you broke four of the Ten Commandments. We are condemned. We don't need a condemner. We need a rescuer. And the church is not the condemner. The church is the light of revelation. But you talk about sin, right? Because if you think you're sinless, you're gonna be lost in your condemnation that you created for yourself. You need a savior. And I got good news. Great joy for all the people. The savior's been born. And you are welcome. You, you are welcome 
into that manger scene, so to say. And once you're there and you've interacted with the Savior, Jesus would say, I'm going to entrust this message to you. The shepherds, they're the clearest example of it. They interacted with the Savior, open arms, bowed knee, and they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child. Jesus would say, that's my church. See? The shepherds, Mary, Joseph, later the wise men, you, you could say, so to say, that they were the first, first ones to be entrusted with the message of this child. I gotta tell you something, what? I found a savior. I gotta tell you about, you gotta know. And Jesus would look and say, when I created my church, later on in the Bible, in the book of Acts, when I created the church, you're to do what I would do if I'm here. You'll do it imperfectly. But it is, it is the high calling it's Christ's great cause and passion. And if you are a follower of Christ, you have been grafted in. You as an individual, we as a congregation, and Christ is the head of the body, the church. If you're looking for a cause to live for, Jesus gave you one. It's called the church. If you're, if you're looking for a place to belong, Jesus created a place for you. It's called the church. If you're looking for something worth building your life around, he gave you something. It's called the church. Your career is going to go with you to the grave. Your education is going to go with you to the grave. Certainly our material things are going to go with us to the grave the part of your life that is eternal are the parts of your life that are lived for the cause and the message and the motivation of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says that is to be primarily lived out through the church. Can you imagine when the angel showed up and the whole scene plays out and everybody leaves to go find the baby wrapped in claws, lying in a manger, being like the one guy who stayed behind. Oh, I don't feel like hiking over there. Had a long week, I was up late last night. The kids are all involved in sports. I mean, it's crazy. Between dance and sports and school and theater, you guys go and find that. I'm just gonna, let me know how it goes. I'll, I'll, I'll watch it on my phone. Can you imagine being the guy that passed on the nativity? You're the wise men, and they see the star. We've been looking for the star, the star. We've talked about the star forever because it's in all the Old Testament prophecies. We've been looking for the star. There it is. There's a new star. Let's go. And there's one guy. His name's Steve. He's like, oh, man, it's during my vacation. Ah, we got to self-finance the trip. I was going to take a cruise. Ah, you guys go. Let me know how it goes. I got get so much going on. Can you imagine being Mary? Mary, something, God's going to use you in an unspeakable way. You are going to be blessed among all women for all of eternity. Oh, but I don't. 
when I snapped about it, all my friends thought it was dumb. Can you imagine being Joseph? You're going to be the provider and the protector of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords while he is in his most vulnerable state on planet Earth. I can't even find good labor to help me frame a house. And I don't need a savior. I'm, I'm fine. Mary, you need God? What, you're, I'm not doing enough for you? Can you imagine passing on the nativity, standing on the outside while it all happens around you? If you can get your head around the nativity, you can get your head around the church. Can you imagine passing on what you have been engrafted into? Passing on the thing that is the passion of God. Passing on, on your high calling. Busy. Not this weekend. Eh. Who's speaking? Christ would look and say, I love you. I gave my life for you. I invite you. I beckon you. Ready? And I am the firstborn. I'm the head of this body, my church. And the way you interact with it is actually how you're interacting with me. But God, I have pain. I know it's part of the process. And it's a bit of a mystery. But I gave my life starting with the manger. And a massive part of what I was doing, there's a bunch, but a massive part of what I was doing, I was establishing my church. And just like your salvation, and just like your filling at the moment of salvation with the Holy Spirit, you are a part of the church. Ask the band to come out, and they'll create a little time for us to think and to pray. But guys, wrestle with this. It's a big deal. In, in the listing of the things Christ is supreme over is his church. Okay. And as I follow Christ, this is a big part of my life, right? And Jesus would say, I actually meant it to be that way. And my people called by my name certainly embrace my body, my bride, my family, my flock, the church. Jesus, we love you. Help us with this, God. In some ways, it's so simple and it's so complicated and you're graceful and merciful and you get it all. Help us, God, to get it. Thank you that 
you made yourself so accessible and we can look at the nativity and see what you wanted, what your heart is. And so it's with open arms, God, that we say, help us, change us, heal us, empower us, direct us. And it's with a bent knee that we proclaim you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the God of gods and the head of us. That you have supremacy not only over this local body, but my life as a member of the church. And so Holy Spirit, if now in these moments you would play your role and help us to understand, to bring the scripture into our hearts and minds and to help us to yield ourselves to you, we will be grateful. Thank you, Jesus, for all of it. Lead us to your heart and mind even now. In your name we pray.